Us podcast. These are the true stories that made it wild. Welcome to the Mad Wild West, episode 6. You've just been transported back to the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. Sit back, relax, and make sure your six-shooter's loaded, because you're about to go on a venture. But first, it's advertisement time. How's this? Beneficial to young and old. Cultivate the Rainier beer habit. It brings the glow of health and gives new lease on life. No medicine can equal it as a tonic. Seattle Brewing and Malting Company. Seattle, Washington. I love it. Shows an old man sitting in this chair with a cane. And it looks like a young girl, uh, probably eight years old, cheering him with another cup. And they both have a beer. So she's going to drink the beer. He's going to drink the beer. And they're doing a little cheers before they down a beer. And she's got to be eight. And he's probably 80. Every man and woman in America should use Dr. Scott's electric flesh brush. Why? Because it quickens the circulation, opens the pores, and enables the system to throw off the impurities which cause disease. It instantly sets upon the blood, nerves, and tissues, imparting a beautiful clear skin, new energy, and new life to all who use it daily. As for Dr. Scott's, take no other see name on the box. The funny thing about this is it does not show... How it works. I don't know if it's batteries, plug-in, electric. It says it's um, not a wire brush, but pure bristles. This is 1800, so I'm not sure how it works. But says every man and woman in America should have one. I would love to see you guys go into Walgreens or CVS and ask for Dr. Scott's electric flesh brush. So next time you're in the drugstore, you're in Walgreens, you're at the pharmacy desk in Walmart, I want you to go up and ask if they've got Dr. Scott's electric flesh brush. Only in the mad wild west will you find things like that. Mullins Liniment, 66% absolute alcohol. Each fluid ounce contains chloroform to be used internally and externally. Cramps, diarrhea, headache, toothaches, rheumatism, sore throat, coughs, cold, asthma, heartburn, bruises, sprains, sores, all for the cheap price of 50 cents a bottle. Mullins Liniment. Since it's got 66% alcohol and chloroform in it, yeah, it'll take care of all of those diseases. At least you won't feel them. may not go away, but you won't feel them. You'll be passed out. And so that is some of the advertisements in the Mad Wild West in the 1800s. Let's see what was going on in the news on October 5th, 1873. This is from the Los Angeles Daily Herald. Los Angeles County, wherever known, is acknowledged to be an earthly paradise. Here we have never-ending summer. Fruits ripen and flowers bloom year-round. But chief among its many advantages is cheap living. That's not the way it is now. Maybe in 1873, but sure isn't now. McDonald's Restaurant. They literally had McDonald's Restaurant. It says McDonald's Restaurant on Commercial Street is the best. One trial of the nice coffee, tea, sirloin steak, fresh eggs, and ranch butter proves that it is the best place in town. Single meals start at 25 cents. It's definitely not that cheap anymore. Let's see what else we got going on here. And here's some brief news tidbits. It says, Robert Burke, policeman, committed suicide last night by shooting himself through the head with a pistol. 
A boy, eight years of age, has been arrested for setting fire to seven buildings in the city at different times just to hear the bells ring and see firemen run. Wow, eight years old. I wonder what happened in his life. Mary O'Neill, a little girl living with her parents, was badly burned yesterday. She died last night. She set fire to her clothing with some matches. A wealthy gentleman of the city will, within a few weeks, establish a technical school for boys to teach them to woodwork and work with metals. Ah Chin Sui, president of Nang Yong Company and chief inspector of six Chinese companies, died on Thursday night after an illness of two days and was buried with great pomp and display this afternoon. There were 77 deaths in this city during the week. Man, that's a lot. You're talking 1870s. I'll have to look up what the population is, but what, maybe a few thousand people there? But there were 77 deaths in one week. That is crazy. The headline here, the Modocs. The fate of the Modocs, Captain Jack and a number of his murderous Confederates executed. In San Francisco, October 4th, the following is a report of the execution at Fort Klamath yesterday of Jack and his band. Boston Charlie and Black Jim were led on the scaffold first, and then Scotton. They mounted with apparent indifference and iron nerve, having evidently resolved to die as brave as they had lived. Jack went easily up the stairway, but looked wretched and miserable. His fetters had been struck off, but his arms were securely pinioned with cords. At 9.45 a.m., interpreters Captain O.C. Applegate and David Hill explained to the culprits the nature of the order to be read to them. Adjunct Kingsbury read the order and the sentence of the commission and the president's order therein with the orders of the Secretary of War and the deputy commander in the premises. The two reprieved prisoners stood on the ground in front of the scaffold, shackled and under guard. During the reading, the prison victims were seated on the platform of the scaffold, with their feet on the drop, listening anxiously but not understanding a word. The reading occupied ten minutes. They were taken to the guardhouse. The chaplain offered a prayer for the souls of the culprits, which was listened to attentively. At 10.15, the nooses were placed around their necks, under the direction of Captain Hogue. It was necessary to cut some of Captain Jack's long hair, which was in the way of the rope. Captain Hogue then bid farewell to the prisoners, and black caps were placed over their heads of all the culprits. At 10.20, they stood on the drop. The rope was cut by the assistant, and the signal was made by Captain Hogue with a handkerchief, and the bodies swung around and around. Jack and Jim apparently died easily, but Boston and the other gentlemen suffered terrible convulsions. They repeatedly drew up their legs, but the others seemed to die almost instantly. As the drop fell with a terrible deadly thung, a half-smothered cry of horror went up from the crowd of over 500 Klamath Indians who witnessed the awful spectacle. Wails of deep and bitter anguish went up from the stockade where the wives and children of the condemned had their fair view of the scene. Coffins, six in number, had been placed directly to the rear of the gallows. There you go. Some more mad Wild West justice right there. Not sure what they did, but when you have the president and the War Department after you, you are going to pay, especially back then. Okay, now I've got a couple headlines from November 25th, 1873. Check this out. For all you fishermen and fisherwomen, a deep sea bass weighing 600 pounds was recently caught in Santa Barbara Channel. 
That's a big fish story. It looks like there was an earthquake. A slight shock of an earthquake was felt about 6 o'clock last evening at the mission in San Jose. Says the San Diego prophet has prophesied new court's discoveries. We hope it's true, but repeated failures have rendered us wary. So much for prophesying there. Here's another one, a report of an earthquake in Eureka. At 8.55 this evening, a severe shock of earthquake was felt lasting 15 seconds. It was also the earthquake in Sacramento was also reported, which stopped the clocks in the Telegraph office and Union Hotel. And those were some of the headlines from 140-something years ago in the mad Wild West. This is going to be a bloody one. Contrary to the natural instincts of the chronicler, the truth of history demands that once more he is to draw the attention of the gentle and refined reader from ludicrous legal exploits of pioneer lawyers to a bloody relation of murder, treachery, midnight robbery, and assassinations most bloody. In September 1853, the country in the southern mines became too hot for many of the bad characters who had operated under the famous Joaquin and small bands would fly from the central organization and drift southward, signalizing their passage by deeds of blood and pillage, and woe be to the unfortunate gringo who fell in their way. Cattle buyers on their way south in parties of one, two, or more were inevitably met and murdered by these fleeing bandits. One party of seven, including one woman, whose name I knew but forget, murdered a party of Americans somewhere not far above San Luis Obispo. That's in California after which they halted long enough in the town to dispose of some of the effects of the murdered party and then continue their march southward. But a few Americans resided in San Luis Obispo, and the sheriff, feeling too weak for successful pursuit, took passage on the steamer bound south, landed at San Pedro, and arrived in Los Angeles late on Saturday evening, and at once made known the object of his visit to Captain Hope of the Rangers, whose name and the fame of whose company had become a household word with all American settlers in the county south of Monterey, and a like terror to the bandits. Detectives, and we had detectives and the money with which to pay them, were sent out to inquire if such a party had as of yet made an appearance in the city, and at noon on Saturday it was ascertained beyond a doubt that the identical party was then encamped under the shades of a great willow hedge in the rear of Mr. Rowland's, now Bliss, vineyard. That they were on the way south was a matter of certainty, for said the informer, the horses are all saddled and the men booted and spurred. Our captain accordingly made his dispositions to successfully bag his game. The first move was to send a party by way of Old Aliso Street to Boyle Heights, there to lay in wait, anticipating that if the party escaped from the vineyard, they would flee in that direction. Smaller parties were then sent down to San Pedro Street and came up in the rear of the villains and were to be given sufficient time to get into position before the main move was made directly from the barracks to the robber camp under the captain himself. At the appointed time, the captain moved quietly down Almeida Street and into Roland's vineyard, and by the time we had well passed the house, we heard the clatter of fleeing horsemen through the cornfield inside the willow hedge. We had started the game, and one long blast of the bugle notified the watchers on Boyle Heights and the parties in waiting on the south to look for the enemy, and the pursuit commenced. Did the reader ever exchange in cavalry skirmish in a cornfield? If not, he has failed to participate in one of the most exciting pleasures that it is possible to conceive. 
As the girls say about dancing, it is perfectly splendid. In a few moments, the pop, pop, pop of the revolver and the answering yell and hurrahs of the intercepting rangers, the defiant yells of the robbers and the crashing of the breaking cornstalks admonished the captain that the game had become interesting. And in a moment, he was among them. In less than five minutes, you could hear the pop of the revolver and the yell and hoots in every direction for half a mile or more away. The thieves having broken and scattered, nothing could be seen. The corn, the hedges, the vineyard, and trees would occasionally momentarily reveal a flying and pursuing horseman. The rangers separated each bent on securing his man, and the chase become intensely exciting. More corn was trampled down, more grapes destroyed in the skirmish and pursuit, the writer ventures to say, than were ever paid for. By sunset, the ranger company had reported back to the headquarters, and the whole party of robbers, horses, bags, and baggages were our prisoners, and were duly placed under guard, including as pretty a little brunette woman as ever excited the desires of a Mormon missionary. And strange to say, the latter was the last to surrender, used her revolver like a trooper, and was the only one that escaped to Boyle Heights, which she did, and fell unexpectedly into the arms of the disappointed rangers who were there and anxious waiting. The seven who appeared at San Luis Obispo had increased to ten, not counting the woman. On Monday morning, rumors of lynching began to circulate, and by noon it became quite evident that unless the robbers were protected by the ranger, their doom was certain. The United States District Attorney, however, went among the lynchers and represented to them that the people of San Luis Obispo had the best right to administer justice in this instant, and it would not be neighborly or courteous for them to intervene in so delicate a matter, and that it was not our hang. And Captain Hope informed them that the Rangers would deliver the prisoners to the Sheriff of San Luis Obispo on board the upbound steamer and would furnish him a guard if necessary on the passage up. On this empathetic assurance, the lynchers subsided. The prisoners, including the amorous-looking little brunette, were safely delivered on board Haley's little steamer, were so securely ironed as to negate the necessity for a guard, and arrived at the San Luis Obispo landing. The town being seven miles from the landing, the sheriff sent out for a guard to safely escort his prisoners to town, and the steamer waited. Haley was the most accommodating captain that ever ran on this coast, and somewhat more will be said in due time of this gallant old salt who has so gracefully converted his old maritime charts into legal parchment. With the least possible delay, a detachment of citizens came down to assist in safely landing the chained bandits, and then safely escorted them to the first tree that presented itself on the bleak, treeless plain, and in the most gentle but positive manner possible, proceed to string up the whole party, including that game little vixen aforesaid, that frail, gentle-looking brunette, and so endeth the first act of this bloody chapter. About the same time, an American cattle rancher named Porter, while coming from the Dominguez Ranch to the city, was murdered and robbed in the outskirts on Alameda Street by a man who had accompanied him in the capacity of a servant and interpreter. The rider on his way from San Pedro to Los Angeles was informed at the Dominguez place that the American and his servant had just left for the city and rode hard to come up with them for the sake of company, but took the road that came in by way of San Pedro Street. Dr. Wilson Jones, riding in from the Lugos at about an hour before sundown, came on the murdered man, dead and bleeding in the middle of the road, and he rode rapidly to town to give the alarm. 
the ranger parties were at once sent out in all direction, although it seemed most certain that the assassin would go towards San Diego. Accordingly, a well-mounted party under Lieutenant Stanley took the road in that direction. Stanley always was a hard rider, and I presume that, notwithstanding the silver threads of time that now besprinkle the head of the gallant old ranger, denoting the approach of an honorable old age, Stanley, if called on by duty or necessity, could make the same ride again. Phoenix Banning, always ready to ride with the rangers as well as to supply them with means, and Dr. Winston, then more of a lightweight than at present, were of the party, and I believe the two marshal boys were also along. The party rode all night and ate a hasty breakfast at San Juan Capistrano, where they had learned the fugitive murderer was only a half hour ahead of them when they entered the little mission town. In the meantime, it had been ascertained in the city that the murderer was one Manuel Varga, a most notorious up-country assassin and robber, who had in some way integrated himself into the confidence of Mr. Porter, and in riding into town, as above described, had, from behind, shot him through the head and robbed him of a considerable amount that he had carried with him to pay on the purchase of cattle he might make. Lieutenant Stanley, who attended procuring fresh horses, at once mounted his men, and driving their spurs into the bleeding flanks of their highly groomed and well-fed choice Mustangs, without the loss of a minute, dashed out of the village in hot and eager pursuit. The fugitive was now an hour ahead of his pursuers, and the great fear of the rangers was that he would procure a fresh horse and gain this great advantage, otherwise they felt confident in their ability to overtake him. The rangers had the best horses the country could afford. They were well-fed, groomed, and exercised every day, and were in good keeping to be pushed to the utmost endurance of a California Mustang. And it is conceded that a well-kept California horse will endure the most incredible hard rides. The rangers pushed on, and as they came in sight of the mission of San Luis Rey, they were gladdened by the sight of a horseman riding rapidly away. Then commenced the race for life. The fugitive was a mile ahead of Stanley's party, and finding himself pursued, made every effort to gain on his pursuers. But the rangers gained on him. Every mile reduced the distance, and five miles from the mission, the rangers, sometimes one ahead, sometimes another, commenced to fire on him with the revolvers, and at every shot, the desperate scoundrel would howl back with his defiant yells. And so the chase continued for another five miles, when one by one the ranger's horses commenced dropping behind, and the murderer's horse seemed as fresh as ever. The distance passed over in that fight and pursuit was a full 100 miles, and the rider would shrink from the relation of such a personal exploit, but not being of that party, he declares the truth of what he writes. As a side note, there's somewhere right around Carlsbad, California, which is uh, a suburb of San Diego, is basically where they're at at this time, if you want to follow along on a map. One ranger's horse, however, continued to gain on the fugitive, and soon the two were far ahead of the other ranger, whether it was Stanley or one of the marshal boys, or Banning, who continued to gain on the fleeing murderer. The writer is not sure, but is under the impression that it was Green Marshal. Finally, the pursuing ranger came up so close to the pursued that he turned in his saddle and commenced to fire back at the ranger. And thus the race continued until both had fired their last shot without effect. And let the reader be informed that the men so blown and excited, so worn out and unsteady, are apt under such circumstances to shoot wide of the mark.
the ranger continued to gain on the fugitive until the two were brought side by side and commenced striking at each other with their empty revolvers. <laughs> that would be a sight. Their horses were staggering and reeling and about to fall exhausted on the plain. The ranger, out of breath, demanded the surrender of the fugitive, who, with glaring eyeballs and bated breath, hissed defiance through his closed set of teeth. At last the ranger seized the reins of the fugitive bridle, and while holding on with one hand, he tried to beat him down with his revolver in the other. Varga was a full match for his antagonist, and succeeded in drawing his bowie knife and making his first cut at the ranger, and cut his own bridle rein, which freeing his horse from the hold of the ranger, who in the conflict had dropped his own rein, and the two became in a moment separated. Varga drove his spurs into his horse, and he shot ahead like a bombshell. The ranger's horse veered off to one side, and in a harsh endeavor to bring him up, he reeled, fell, and lay exhausted on the plain. Varga, with a triumphant shout, pressed forward, and when the tired-out rangers who had been left behind came up, the fugitive murd had passed out of sight and escaped. Being unable to procure fresh horses for the pursuit, the disappointed rangers, utterly tired out, exhausted, on foot, leading and urging on their broken steeds, managed to reach San Diego and lay the matter of their pursuit before that sterling old patriot, Don Santiago, who procured an Indian and paid him a large sum to carry a dispatch to the commanding officer at Yuma and to double the amount if he should reach there ahead of Varga. Surmising correctly that the fugitive would make his way to that place, procuring a fresh horse, Varga pushed on to Fort Yuma, where he camped on the edge of the river just below the ferry. Major Heinzelman, who commanded at Yuma, had in the meantime received Don Santiago's dispatch. The Indian, having successfully accomplished his mission, sent a sergeant and file of soldiers down to bring the suspicious-looking Mexican into the headquarters. Varga refused to go, drew his revolver on the sergeant, and was shot dead by the soldiers. Now that is some mad wild west justice. While the rangers were yet in pursuit of Varga, poor old Jack Whaling, a brave, honest Irishman who had succeeded the Arkansas man as city marshal, was assassinated boldly and publicly in open daylight on the corner of our most public street, and this was in Los Angeles. His assassin, by the name of Senti, wiped the blood of the victim from his knife, quietly mounted his horse, and rode away. The town was thrown into an intense excitement. A meeting was held, a committee of safety was appointed, and it was resolved to purify the city and banish all the bad characters. Then, after the reconsideration of the subject in secret conclave by the committee, it was agreed that the step resolved upon would be dangerous, for the reason that the bad characters were evidently in the majority and might turn out and banish the committee and their backers. The rangers were all out, and the utmost alarm pervaded the civil part of the community. And now a digression is proposed, and the reader, especially the mercantile reader, is informed that the first commercial failure in Los Angeles was that of Mexican merchant Murano, who failed about August of 1853, and not only disappeared from commercial circles, but also from the city. Murano was a tall, straight, fine-appearing white man, belonged to the best blood of Sonora, and up to the time of his disappearance stood well in society, and was highly respected. Expected. Every few days after the murder of Whaling, a robbery or a murder or some other outrage would be reported from some part of the community and county. 
The rangers were kept busy but failed to make any important discoveries or captures. Sometimes they would be sent to the Soledad Canyon or the Santa Clara Valley, sometimes to San Juan Capistrano and around the country generally, following the wisp of some false alarm without any important result. In the meantime, news came of the killing of Joaquin and the dispersal of his band in Monterey County, and that the frightened bandits were making their way southward. The excitement and alarm was fearful. The city was actually in the stage of siege. Business was at a standstill, and October passed and November set in. And now for another digression. In the month of November, the steamer brought a small army of fair and frail sisters from San Francisco, the pioneers of the foreign element in the propagation of the social evil in our angelic and highly refined civilization. We had thieves and cutthroats of all nations under the sun, but up to November 1853, the mode and the demi-mode was represented by ladies to the manor born. The frail pioneers established themselves in a large house on Upper Main Street and made their debut by giving a grand ball to which they invited all the principal gamblers of the city. And on the night of the brilliant affair, when dancing and drinking had grown to a fever heat, when mad rivalry had run riot, a loud knock demanded admittance to the ballroom. On the door being opened, a dozen Mexican bandits armed to the teeth marched boldly into the room and covered the astonished revelers with the revolvers and carbines. The leader was masked and spoke English. He informed the gamblers that the house was surrounded by a hundred armed men, and if they offered the least resistance, they would be murdered without mercy. But if they submitted quietly, they would be spared. The robbers, for such they were, then went through and plundered the house, finding most of the gamblers' overcoats and revolvers in the adjoining wine room, after which they passed the gamblers out of the ballroom into the wine room, searching and robbing them one by one until the last man was fleeced, when they proceeded to search and rob the frail sisters, stripping them of their valuable jewelry and money. They then bade the house goodbye, mounted their horses, and rode away. The robbers betook themselves to a vineyard of a well-to-do Frenchman who dwelt in the old-fashioned adobe house that now stands on the south side of New Aliso Street, just beyond the venerable old Aliso tree, under the shades of which the thieves halted and dismounted, and one part of the band holding the horses, the others entered the house. After binding the owner, proceeded to search the house for money and valuables. By rifling drawers and trunks, and by threats, they succeeded in obtaining a considerable amount of coin and valuable jewelry, among which was a valuable gold watch. They then perpetrated the last outrage on the poor wife of the Frenchman, and being now near on to daylight, they mounted and left the slumbering city. The audacity of this exploit, the mysterious coming and departure of a band so formidable, and handled with such military discipline, the finesse with which they robbed the gamblers, who greatly magnified their number and formidable appearance whence they came, the dark mystery surrounding the adventure led to inquire of another. Well, what's next? Alarm was changed into consideration, and general gloom and terror pervaded the gringo part of the population, especially those who owned stores and merchandise. The writer uses the convenient phrase gringo to signify the whole population except the Spaniards. The gringos at once assumed a negative attitude. All citizens were under arms, the rangers were constantly in the saddle, and well does the writer remember the warlike appearance of Major Nicholas and Solomon Lazard, 
as on a stormy night the two heroes, muffled in storm and rain-protecting blankets, weighed down with sidearms and each with a double-barrel shotgun carried at secured arms to protect them from the pelting rain, marched to their respective stations on the hills west of the city to do picket duty and how a cordon of armed citizens guarded every approach to the angelic stronghold, how the heroic and vigilant Lazard shot a brave old bull who came lost and straggling into town on that eventful night, how the rangers in detachments went into the country on the same rainy night, and how to the utter surprise of the whole city, especially the Spanish part of the population, the robbers entered the city, raided Sonora, sacked several Spanish houses, and carried off forcibly several girls. Whence they came and whither they went was veiled in the mists of mystery. When Mayor Nicholas was on his picket post, the city council sent the marshal to bring him to the council rooms, where they were discussing measures of general defense and required his counsel and advice. I will send them a message, said the mayor, and will send it verbally. Tell the honorables that the most proper measure for the defense of the city would be for them to join the rangers as volunteers or shoulder a shotgun and close the municipal shop for the present. This raid on Sonora occurred about a week after the foray made on the gamblers and the Frenchmen. The angels became nervous, excited, feverish, and impatient. A spirit of disappointment fell upon the ranger company. Constantly keep going on false information, always to be disappointed. They would occasionally jump an armed horseman who was also wary and skillful in his maneuvers that not a single capture was made. That a formidable band of robbers were within easy striking distance of the city was a conceited fact. Where they were, no one could tell. Wild and magnificent rumors and reports of murders here, robberies and outrages there, were spread, and still wild rumors of a Mexican invasion and expulsion of the gringos, all of which time the bandits were encamped within ten miles of the city. How the spirit gave birth of dark and bloody treason, and how the leaders of the robber band were murdered in cold blood will now be in order. When Sente murdered the marshal, the sheriff offered a reward of $1,500 for his arrest and delivery, dead or alive. Now remember, this is 1853 in Los Angeles. $1,500 is a few hundred thousand dollars now. Two months had elapsed and no account of the fugitive assassin. One rainy morning in December, when the excitement raged fearfully and anxiety became unbearable, the news spread like wildfire that the jail yard was full of dead robbers, among whom was Senti. A general rush was made to the jail, where in the yard in the front of the jail door was found a Mexican cart, with the gory corpses of five bandits laying piled one on top of another, stiff and stark, exposed to the driving rain, and presenting all of the horrible contortions in form and feature of men who died in fear and agony. An Indian boy drove the cart to town, arriving between midnight and daylight. The cart was guarded and escorted by a solitary horseman, and that horseman was Murano, the broken merchant. And this is the report he made to the sheriff. He said that about a month previous, he was taken prisoner by the bandits who supposedly demanded a ransom, kept him a close prisoner, and threatened to shoot him unless the ransom was paid that he watched and waited for an opportunity to escape, that Volva, who had been Joaquin's lieutenant, was captain of the band, and Senti was a lieutenant, 
Barano further said that his capture was subsequent to Senti's assassination of Marshall, and he knew of the price set on the head by the sheriff. And in sheer desperation, he determined not only to escape, but to carry Senti's head with him as a trophy. With this determination, he watched and waited for a favorable opportunity, which never came. Growing impatient and still more desperate, the band having gone on a foray and he being left alone with Sente and two guards, he succeeded in obtaining possession of their arms and killed first Sente and then the other two. That the captain, Volva, unexpectedly returned to camp and by a stroke of good management was also slaughtered with his attendant by brave Murano. This all occurred in one of the canyons near the Brea Rancho, and after his brilliant exploit, the freed Murano accidentally encountered the Indian boy with the ox cart, pressed him into service, drove to the robber camp in the canyon, loaded the slaughter bandits, drove to town as above stated, and now demanded the $1,500 from the sheriff in conformity with his offer. Murano was a hero. In less than two hours, the sheriff had raised the money and paid it over. The town took a long breath of relief. The great agony was over. Business began to resume its sway, and the excitement somewhat abated. About a week or two thereafter, Charlie Duncan came out of breath through the back way into the drugstore at the corner of Commercial and Los Angeles streets, where he found Captain Hope and two rangers. Hope understood that someone was robbing Charlie's crib and bidding him return quietly by the way he came. Hope with his two rangers hastily proceeded up Commercial Street. A horse was seen standing in front of Charlie's shop with the rope leading inside, which showed that a man was inside holding the rope. Arriving at the door, the man inside went for his revolver, but before he could draw, he was seized, and after a desperate resistance, was overpowered, and to the surprise of all, he proved to be the hero, Murano. Then Charlie explained that the prisoner offered to pawn the valuable gold watch stolen from the house of the Frenchman before referred to, that he at once recognized the watch and pretended to go into the back room for money, had ran to the drugstore and given the information. Murano was indicted, tried, convicted, and sentenced to 14 years in the penitentiary for the robbery of the Frenchman's house. He then confessed that he himself had been captain of the robber band, and that Volva and Sente were his lieutenants, that he was commander of the robbers when they went through the gamblers and frail dames at the Frenchman's. That, tempted by evil, he had slain Sente to effect which he had sent the band out on service, retaining Sente in camp with three pickets posted on the mountainsides. The two being alone, he killed Sente with a rear thrust with a saber, and to his surprise, Velva returned to camp and was treacherously shot down by his captain. The three pickets, hearing the shot in camp, came in and were treacherously murdered in detail. The ox cart was procured, as above stated, and the dead robbers were brought to town. After being about a year in prison, Murano, a veteran San Francisco forger, old Captain Tuff, attempted to get up an insurrection, disgracefully failed, and were severely punished. He was, after about four years' service, pardoned by the governor and was taken to Sonora by his friends returned again to Los Angeles, recompensed his old tricks, and was again sent up, and again pardoned in 1867, which is the last the writer knows of Murano. There you go, not just bloodshed, but a stab in the back from somebody you thought you could trust. That goes to show you, never trust anybody in the mad Wild West. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and the crazy stories, and until the next episode, keep your horses tied up. Thanks for listening. 
these are the true stories that made it wild.